watching a couple who's been trying to have a baby, watching them find out that they are pregnant, uh, can be a lot of fun. There's one particularly fun YouTube video where the husband tells the wife that she is pregnant. I mean, some of you guys probably have seen this, right? The husband tells the wife that she is pregnant. So in order to get the, the pregnancy test done and taken, he sneaks into the bathroom in the morning, knowing that the toilet would be full and uh, could offer up, shall we say, a specimen, as he calls it. And then, so he, you know, he gets the dropper, he takes the test, and uh, the video blog, you know, he's reflecting on these things, he's thoroughly excited, and then eventually over breakfast, he gets his wife to find the test. And being it's such a huge surprise, and a very unusual surprise, because the man's telling the woman that she is pregnant, uh, she thinks it's, a, it's fake, she thinks it's all a joke. And her husband, uh, working in the medical field, you know, she naturally looks at him and thinks, you know, you brought this home. It's a fake test. You're messing around with me. It's all a joke. Uh, and it's so fun to watch the penny drop for her as she realizes that she is really pregnant. And the responses, too, that come are, are always fun to watch. Uh, you know, we see them going from thinking about the everyday stuff. I mean, at that point in time, she's serving her family breakfast. You know, she's thinking about the everyday stuff of life. To then when she finds out, when the penny drops, she finds out she's pregnant. Then she all of a sudden is thinking, uh, making sense of what has happened before, you know, in terms of sickness and things like that. And then seeking to make sense of everything that's going to happen to come, the future. And all the implications that that has for them as a family, her as a person, etc., etc. And given this is a video blog, a vlog... Uh, they, the couple, invites us, invites the watchers to follow along in the pregnancy and to watch how the pregnancy unfolds. In today's passage, that's actually what we have for us, in front of us. We have the response of Mary as she finds out she indeed is pregnant with the incarnate Son of God, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then we also have an invitation to follow along, to see what happens, not only as the pregnancy unfolds, but as this person's life unfolds, as Jesus Christ lives, as Jesus Christ dies, and then as he is raised from the dead. We get to view this intimate setting, the pregnancy reveal, Mary's precious response, and then what the pregnancy means, not only for her or her husband, her future husband, but then for the whole entire world. Our passage this morning is found in Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 55. You can go ahead and turn there. Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 55. And if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a follower of Jesus Christ, I hope this passage helps you understand who Christ is. I mean, this is fitting for Christmas, isn't it? As Christ is the leading word of Christmas. It's the one, he is the one that Christmas points to. And here in the Gospels, in the Gospel of Luke, what you have here are records written by men seeking to give readers, that is us, an accurate account of who this Jesus Christ is. And this, the Gospel of Luke, or the Gospel written by Luke, uh, it was written by a first century doctor. And here he's writing to a man named Theophilus, so if you have your Bibles open, you can look there at chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, and just sort of scan it there. You see there that Luke writes with the purpose of providing this man, Theophilus, with an orderly account. You see there the, the eyewitnesses, right? So Luke goes about, he researches these things. He, he himself was a follower of, uh, he followed Paul around on his missionary journeys. He was friends with an apostle. And so he's investigating everything, these eyewitness accounts, these written accounts as well, in order to provide an orderly account for Theophilus of the things he had been taught concerning this Jesus Christ. Well, in our passage today, we see an ordinary woman rejoicing in her extraordinary God. Mary really serves here as a model for us, calling us to walk in our footsteps, rejoicing for the Savior has come. I'll go ahead and read that, starting in 39. It says, In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town of Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. 
And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This sermon, we're going to focus on Mary's rejoicing, Mary's song. It's a very famous song. But before we get to her actual rejoicing, it's important to look at the background there, found in verses 39 to 45. And this here is an intimate, intimate account here as two cousins, Mary and Elizabeth, are reunited. At this point in time, God had already revealed to Mary and Elizabeth that the two of them would bear children even though physically it was an impossibility. Elizabeth and her husband Zechariah were unable to conceive, as Elizabeth was barren, as it says earlier. And Mary, while she is betrothed to Joseph, she is still a virgin. And their marriage had not yet been finalized. But it is not surprising that God over all, God who is sovereign over all things, is intimately involved with them as well. And here... Just as he speaks the universe into existence, here too he proclaims and says without doubt that this barren woman will have her womb opened. That this virgin woman would conceive of the Holy Spirit and give birth to a son. You see there in 137 it says, therefore nothing will be impossible with God. So here God is using these two sort of backwoods, in-the-sticks women to bring about some very important people. Elizabeth was pregnant with John the Baptist, the, the last Old Covenant prophet, whose very life's purpose was to prepare the way for the Son of God. And Mary was pregnant with none other than the Son of God incarnate, Jesus Christ the Lord. It's worth taking, this, taking some time to see how God, uh, this plan of God uh, unfolds here from 126 go ahead and look there god sends his angel gabriel to mary who is described there in verse 27 is very clear a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was joseph of the house of david and the virgin's name see, you get this emphasis here that she really is a virgin this virgin's name was mary uh, verse 30 go ahead and look there the angel said to her do not be afraid mary For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. God saves. Look there at 34, 38, and Mary said to the angel, she, you know, she's obviously flabbergasted. How can this be since I am a virgin? Yet again, he's making it very clear. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore... The child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And then the angel departed from her. So naturally, she knows already her, the cousin that she has here, Elizabeth, in her old age is going to have a son too, John the Baptist. And so in verse 39, it says that she goes there in haste to go and see her. Mary is in Nazareth, so she travels a few days south to Judah to reunite with her cousin, 
who was six months pregnant with John the Baptizer. It's hard to imagine these gals as they were then, at that point in time. I mean, now we think of Elizabeth as John the Baptist's mother. Right? How cool would that be, to be the mother of John the Baptist? And then we also think of Mary as the mother of Jesus. But, you know, it's hard to imagine Elizabeth and Mary as they were then. These women here were simple, ordinary women with very ordinary lives. Probably much like you and I, just the average person. I mean, for Elizabeth, the big news in her family was that her husband, Zechariah, was selected by lot to perform a once-in-a-lifetime temple ritual of burning incense in the temple of God. It is a big deal, legitimate, legitimate big deal, but, you know, it's still somewhat average. Other than that, you know, they seem to be just the, the average run-of-the-mill people here. And then Mary herself was still a young teen at this point in time, betrothed to Joseph, as it was their custom at the time. She probably was not very educated, probably, to some degree, illiterate. And the place where she was from, you know, it was Nazareth. What good can come out of Nazareth? It was sort of known to be the city where nothing special took place. But there in this little town, you know, as you imagine these two pregnant women are coming to be, Elizabeth in her old age is perhaps walking around holding her womb, feeling John the Baptist in the water, get it? <laughs> Moving around, punching, kicking. And then you have Mary, you know, three, three months pregnant at this point in time. They're meeting John the Baptist. And, you know, they probably felt each other's bellies. They probably compared each other's bellies. You know, and then Elizabeth, who's gone, is going before her, going before Mary, probably is telling her what's going to come and how her body is going to change. This is really an intimate picture of this reunion here of these two women, chosen of God to move history into the next era of the presence of Jesus. All this taking place in this backwoods place of Judah. There is good reason to think that both gals didn't fully realize what was going on here. Even in this reunion, they are seen to play a bit of catch-up. In verses 40 and 41, go ahead and look there. Mary enters into the house, and when Elizabeth hears Mary's greeting, John the baby leaps in her womb. And we have every reason to think that John, in the womb, knows who is maybe, you know, if they're hugging each other, knows maybe who is just six inches or a few inches away from him. 115, if you go ahead and look there, it says that John, a prophet, would be filled with the Spirit of God from the womb. This is no, this is no average baby here. And this is evidence of it here as he leaps in the womb in recognition that God the Son is right before him. The word leaping speaks of something so much more than kicking or punching. Uh, this word is used for flocks bounding in the fields. So even from the womb here, John is living out his mission as he bounds before Jesus, preparing the way for the Son of God. Uh, I had an interesting time thinking about this. You know, whatever party song comes to your mind, maybe the party song was going on and John is doing whatever dance you think of. That's what's going on here. Excited, imagine that. John the Baptist, who lives to proclaim, clear the way for the Son of God to come. But it isn't until John leaps that Elizabeth then, also filled with the Spirit, affirms for the very first time in human words, or from a human, what Mary already knows from God. Right? This really is the earthly pregnancy reveal. Before that, the angel had said, you are going to be pregnant, but uh, she hasn't heard that she is pregnant, or heard that this baby in her womb that we know of is the Son of God from man. So here, this is a special time. Pregnancy reveal, the earthly reveal, what is known and acknowledged in heaven, here becomes acknowledged and known on earth. 42, look there, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Again, what a wonderful scene this would have been as these average, ordinary gals from the back country, both of whom are pregnant, find themselves invited into the grand plan of God's salvation. The prophecy spoken of a long time ago that we have read, that Danny read for us earlier in Isaiah chapter 9, 700 years most likely before Jesus Christ came, 
These things are being are unraveling right before them and unraveling in them. The Lord, the sovereign Son of God, was making his appearance. And Elizabeth knows this. So she says, the mother of my Lord has come to me. The sovereign one, the mother of the sovereign one. And at the sound of Elizabeth's rejoicing, Mary responds with her own hymn of praise. So let's look now, we've looked at the setting, let's look now at Mary's rejoicing. Mary's rejoicing. This rejoicing of the ordinary woman drives this passage. In fact, it is, the, it is rejoicing that drives the first couple of chapters. So we have Mary's song here that we already read. Then if you turn over to 167, go ahead and turn over to 167, we see, we see here that Zechariah is filled with the Spirit. This is John the Baptist's father. And he prophesies, saying, Blessed be God. So here you've got this blessing and prophecy moving forward, the story here of the Gospel of Luke. And then in chapter 2, we see that not only is it those on earth that rejoice, but then those in heaven rejoice too. Look at 2.14. We see there that the heavenly angels say at the birth of Jesus Christ, 2.14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And then in 2.29, a man named Simeon beholds Jesus and announces the arrival of the Lord's salvation. There in 29 to 32. You gotta you gotta see this here. These songs are driving forth the narrative, the story of Jesus Christ come in the flesh. And at the announcement of the, the conception, you have prophecy. At the arrival, when they are, when, when Elizabeth recognizes there's blessing. Blessed be Mary, blessed be the Son of God. Mary herself hears these things and she she catapults her own explosion of blessing. And so you see here, all these blessings take place around the arrival of the Son of God. Mary's song paves the way, explaining who this Jesus is, and these are grand announcements. Mary's song is known as the Magnificat. It's a Latin word that means, I magnify. I magnify. That's basically what's translated there in 146. It says in English, my soul magnifies. Uh, in parallel, it's my spirit. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So here he's, she immediately magnifies God for what exactly is going on here. My soul magnifies or makes large or praises or extols the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. In many ways, magnifying the Lord is the Christian's grand task, isn't it? What we see Mary doing right here, uh, celebrating what God is doing in Jesus Christ, what we see here actually represents this grand task of the Christian. And that's why we gather today. That's why we gather tonight at our carol service. I hope you can join us there at 7 p.m. where we are going to sing Christ-centered Christmas carols and hear a devotional about the arrival of Jesus Christ, why God sent his Son. This is why we take special time to meditate on the arrival of the Savior. It's so that our hearts would be more like John's, bounding because of the presence of God on earth. That our hearts would be more like Mary's, rejoicing in the fact that God is with us. But this task of magnifying our Creator and Maker is not only for Sundays, it's our task for every single day, isn't it? As God commands us to do everything for the glory of God. So, in relation to what's going to take place over this next week for you guys and your families, I pray that as you go about seeing your family and your friends this season, you purposefully take time to magnify Christ. You realize, Christian, you have been given great capacities being made in the image of God to live for His glory in everything you do, so that whether you are eating or whether you are drinking, you can do so for the glory of God. So on Christmas, when you maybe see your family and friends, you do so to the glory of God. You can give and receive presents for the glory of God. You can eat pecan pie even to the glory of God. I wonder, what is your plan to redeem the time with your family on Christmas. All right, so I know some of you guys are going to be approaching the same old Christmas gatherings again. 
But what is your plan to make things different, to redeem the time, to glorify God like Mary, like John, like Elizabeth, like Zechariah, like the angels in heaven regarding the birth of Jesus Christ? Are you intentional about these things? I know some of you are wanting your Christmas gatherings to be more about Jesus Christ, and that's a wonderful thing. Friends, guess what? It starts with you. Do something about it, not in a Grinch-like way, but in a loving way. So if you are wondering what to do, go ahead and pull out your bulletin. You'll see there that there's a bulletin insert here called 10 Questions to Ask at a Christmas Gathering given to us by Don Whitney here. And uh, Don Whitney, he encourages us to redeem the time. He's wanting us to chat with people that we hardly ever see, or sometimes we are just meeting about Christmas and the true meaning of Christmas, that is Jesus Christ. And he just gives you 10 questions that you can go on and ask of others. What's your favorite Christmas tradition as a child, he says. Look there, question number five. Question number six, what is your favorite Christmas tradition now? What do you do to try to keep Christ in Christmas? These are all wonderful things that you can use, ways in which you can start, generate conversations about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Christian, may you celebrate the Christmas holidays in a way where you use your given capacities for exaltation and glorification of Jesus Christ to the fullest. Don't let it be about fulfilling the capacities of your flesh, stuffing your faces, feeding the idols of your materialism, and even spending time with your family in a way there where they are Lord and Christ is secondary. Redeem the time, Christians. Magnify Christ the Savior. If you're visiting with us as a non-Christian, you know you too have been given great capacities for the worship of your maker. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? I mean, God is the creator of us. He's our maker. And so naturally, we are given capacities to worship this maker. And even though you may not worship Jesus Christ, those capacities to magnify something are always firing, always firing. Right? If you've been given these things, those capacities are always being flexed, so to speak. So you can see it in, in, in your unquenchable desire to have more and more material things. I mean, when I was six years old, I got, the sa- I got uh, this board game. Uh, it had to do something with picking cherries off of uh, a cherry tree. And uh, I already owned the thing. And so here I have this family given, giving this game to me. And I'm only six years old. And I start crying because I have two now. You see that that's capacities for something, capacities for wanting, glorifying, and there I'm using it, my capacities to glorify getting, my idolatries for stuff. When all the time, you know, at six years old, I'm not caring about this family who's just spent their money to give me this gift. I don't care about that. I have no thanksgiving for these particular people who've sacrificed their money and who are great family friends of mine and my father's. Instead, I only care about getting, and so my world apparently is collapsing because I got the same old board game. Now I only have two of them. Those are capacities that are being flexed for my own benefit. You see it in a six-year-old. I'm guessing you probably see it in yourself too. Unquenchable desire for material things. Unquenchable desire for food, alcohol. Drugs, sex. You can even see it in other things. Let's say you you seek currently to please your family more than God. Letting their desires and wishes and commands prevent you from following Jesus. Prevent you from being baptized. Prevent you from owning Jesus Christ publicly. There you see those capacities for a worship being flexed for yourself or being used towards others, and not for God. But friends, God alone is worthy of worship. And he has designed you like a masterpiece for his glory. This is why Augustine, a 4th century church father, he wrote this about God and man. He says, Thou, that is 
God, thou hast formed us for thyself. God forms us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. Friends, are you finding yourself to be restless this Christmas season? Maybe despairing over the family that you yourself have lost. Restless because you want certain things. You've been given capacities, capacities to worship your Lord and Savior. Keep that in mind as we continue to look at Mary's rejoicing here. Well, this is just a reflection of what we see in Scripture. You know what Augustine talks about? Our hearts are formed for Him, and they will not find rest until they're resting in Him. But, but this just reflects, for example, what we see Mary in Mary's praise here. Her worship is directed towards God. She says, I magnify the Lord, that is the sovereign one of all. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, God who delivers and rescues. So this is all biblical stuff here as Mary rejoices in her God. But why exactly is this ordinary woman rejoicing in her extraordinary God? Why is God extraordinary? So we saw Mary's rejoicing. Now we look at why God is extraordinary. Mary gives us reasons there first. Because God is not only over our lives, but intimately involved in them. God is not only over our lives, but he's intimately involved in them. Verses 48 to 50. Did you notice that in verses 40 and 50, this is actually what she talks about? Mary announces that certainly that God is transcendent or God is so other. But here then she moves into the fact that God is personally involved in her own life. He is not only transcendent, the Lord, God the Savior, but he's also God who is imminent, God who is present, God who is intimately involved, him who is caring for her. She goes from his sovereignty to his intimacy. He says there, for he has looked upon me. For he who is mighty, sovereign power, has done great things for me. This is a beautiful testimony of God's intimate care for his people, isn't it? I mean, here stands Mary in a long line of people in the Bible who experienced God's sovereignty wielded for their good. You know, again, this is a woman from the sticks holding her womb with baby Jesus, recognizing that the sovereign God is not only over her life, but intimately involved in it. You know, it's likely that Mary was actually meditating on God's compassion towards others in the Old Testament. Here as she's walking her three-day journey to Judah. Isn't that pretty cool? Mary, as she's on her mode of transportation, probably a donkey or something like that, is uh, meditating on God's sovereignty and intimacy with people from the Old Testament and then applying it to her life. And if you know your Bibles, Mary's song actually parallels uh, a gal named Hannah, her prayer when she was barren and then God went and opened her, her womb in 1 Samuel 1 and 2. You can go ahead and read that this afternoon. Mary's hymn of praise shares many of the same themes as Hannah's prayer. So she most likely here is meditating on Hannah's prayer and then making it her own. I mean, in Jewish history, it was normal that on feast days, certain feast days here, Israel would be meditating on Hannah's prayer and God's deliverance of her, opening her womb and blessing her with a prophet, Samuel. So just as Hannah knew that God was intimately involved in her situation, so Mary knows this too. God had chosen her to be the mother of the incarnate Christ. Thus, Mary says, future generations will call me blessed. Now, this is not a call to worship or venerate Mary. Some people, because of Mary's unique position of being the mother of Jesus, they basically want to go on and worship her. But the phrase simply recalls chapter 1, verse 42, that she is blessed among women. She has a special place among women as, one, as the one who is chosen to bear the Son of God. She is blessed in that she receives a special favor from God. And we know, too, that Christians are also blessed having received a special favor from God. So there's nothing in the text that should make us think that uh, Mary deserves a special sort of veneration or blessing from Christians from generation to generation. That's 
not really what's going on here. She receives a special favor from God. She plays a certain place in God's redemptive history, but there is no need for us to go on and venerate her. There's another place where Luke uh, mentions this blessedness of Mary. It's, it's brought up again. During the events of Luke 11, Jesus is going around showing people that uh, he is the Son of God. And in Luke 11, 27 to 28, it says there, a woman in the crowd says to Jesus, blessed is the womb that bore you. And you know what Jesus says? In a rebuke, he deflates her praise of Mary and says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. He deflates her praise over Mary and says, no, no, no. You pay attention to what is really significant. That is listening to the Father in heaven and those people are blessed. So here he guards against any sort of extreme worship or reverence of man and moves again to the worship and praise of God. First Baptist Church, thinking about this uh, rejoicing because of God's intimate care, I wonder if you sing of God's intimate care for you. Do you sing of this intimate care for you? No doubt Mary experiences favor from God in a unique way, being the mother of the incarnate Son of God. But Christian, the incarnate Son, or God the Son coming in the flesh, is a, indeed a testimony of God's intimate care for you. In the incarnation, we see God's sovereign power at work. As God, who is so other, so transcendent, sends His Son to take on the flesh of man. His otherness or transcendence is matched by his nearness, his imminence. And God does all of that, right? He flexes his sovereign power and takes on flesh to save man. That's why Christ is called Emmanuel, that is God with us. I mean, in that he is flexing both his sovereignty and his imminence to bless you. I mean, the incarnation, doesn't it tell us so much about this God that we worship? I mean, imagine if, let's say, all of us had one father. But he remained behind closed doors. Right? He chooses to, to never reveal himself in person. And in our greatest moment of need, whether we fall down and skin ourselves when we're four years old, or when we're going through some grievous devastation in our lives. When we are wrestling with our very own sin, all he does is just send his assistant to deal with it. He just writes off a little memo and says, okay, here you go, guys. Now, sure, maybe for a little while this might suffice. You know, I hope you're, you're really thinking about this. What if I had a father who lived behind closed doors and never revealed himself to us? Maybe his assistant and his memos might suffice for a while. But how about one year? of never seeing, knowing this Father, to stoop down and rescue out of compassion. Two years, three years, ten years of memos and assistance, but never seeing the real thing, that relationship does not resemble any sort of relationship. Now, we might say, oh, but doesn't God do that in his word? <clears throat> I mean, don't we know him truly in his word? I say, yes, we do. But if he's prophesying that my son will come and never comes, then we can just forget about his word. But because God prophesies of himself, and he says, I am loving, and I will send my son to die on the cross for you, to bear all of your transgressions, and then he actually does it? He actually opens the doors and reveals himself to us who soups down to our level to help us, to identify with us, to relate with us. Don't we have reason, too, to rejoice of the fact that God is imminent, that He is with us, that His care is intimate, personal, in the flesh? For some of you without fathers in the picture, you... I'm sure you recognize that I might be describing your situation. The good news is that, friends, you realize that you stand um, the chance to appreciate the incarnation in ways that many of us do not. Because in Christ, God the Son 
shows us the Father. That is, to know Him is to know the Father. And in your greatest need, God is with you to bear your burdens, to heal, and to save. So Mary's song about the Incarnation becomes our song too, doesn't it? She says, for He that is the sovereign God has looked upon me. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. That's the first reason there, his intimate care for why God is so extraordinary. With God there is intimate care. Second reason is that with God there is hope. With God there is hope. Verses 51 to 53. In these verses we see that with God... The ways of the world are flipped upside down, such that the proud who reject God are humbled. They're brought low. And then the lowly who trust God are exalted. So here he's not getting at strictly those who have a lot of money. That's not exactly what what, uh, Mary is getting at here. That's not exactly God's ways. He's getting at those who trust in themselves. So when Mary mentions the proud, the mighty, the rich, she means specifically those who do not trust in God, but trust in themselves, their riches, their own might. And then on the flip side, the humble and the hungry are those who depend on God. And as Mary speaks of those of humbled estate, she herself is this great example. So in verse 48 of chapter 1, it says, You have looked on the humble state of your servant. This reversal of fortune, as we call it, this reversal of fortune has its roots all the way in the Old Testament. Uh, So as she is pregnant with the Son of God, something generates inside of her to recognize, to look back and make sense of what has gone on in the past. This reversal of fortune has roots in the Old Testament. So in many places in the Old Testament, God is seen to humble the proud who reject him and then exalt the, the humble who trust in him. So in terms of exalting the humble, you can take Abraham, for example. God draws out this pagan man, him and his wife, Sarai, and he uses them to build the people of God. And so he becomes the model of living life by faith. You can think about Israel, right? Why is it that God chose Israel? Was it because they were more numerous or more powerful? No, it was because, actually, God loved them, it says. That's the reason why Israel is chosen of God. It's just because God loves them. God goes on to recognize that they are a lowly nation. People, uh, there weren't very many of them. And then in terms of humbling the proud, I mean, what can you think of? You think of when Moses and Israel were led out of Egypt and God uh, brought low Pharaoh in Egypt in the Exodus because they opposed God. You can think of Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylonians, whose story is found in the Old Testament book of Daniel. He refused to acknowledge God and instead boasted of himself. And eventually God humbled him low and had him eating grass like an animal. A question, though, that we ought to be asking is, so what in the world does this have to do with the son that is in Mary's womb? Humbling the exalted and then exalting the humble. She says there, if you notice, this is her logic. These two things are connected. Because the son of God is here, God has scattered the proud. It's a weird connection there. Because the Son of God is here, God has brought down the mighty. He has filled the hungry. He has sent away the rich. I mean, these statements don't appear to have anything to do with each other, but in reality, they have everything to do with each other. Because in Christ, God is flipping the world's ways on their head. And Mary clues us in with the arrival of Christ the Son. It is good as done. That's why these things are spoken of in the past tense here. She receives word that the Son of God is inside of her. She speaks in the past tense, not only making sense of what has gone before, but also making sense of what will come ahead in the baby that is in her womb. So these words here are, they function very much like a prophecy about what is going to happen. This reversal of fortune is spoken of as already having been accomplished. Because the Son of God is here. Because God has fulfilled His promises. 
In many ways, these statements serve as a prophecy about what will happen in Jesus Christ where all of God's future objectives and outcomes have already been fulfilled and won. Where God shames the proud who are opposed to Him and uplifts the humble who trust in Him. And, you know, as you go on to read the Gospel of Luke, which I hope you you would this week as you're thinking about Christmas, I hope you see there that the Gospel of Luke actually simply unfolds everything that Mary herself is talking about here. So, for example, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 5. Go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 5. Again, we're seeing this reversal of fortune that takes place in Jesus Christ. And you look there at verses 27 to 52. And I'll go ahead and read this statement here. Luke 5, 27, 32. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. This is Jesus here. Uh, a tax collector. Now, these folks are basically the lowlifes uh, who would have robbed the people, basically. You guys hopefully remember this from last week. Um, so these people were folks that you would not want as neighbors. Okay? And, and Jesus sees Levi sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And get this, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees, that is those folks that you want as your neighbors, those folks who are going to be trustworthy with your keys and your children, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see there? Who is it that is worthy of salvation? It's not the righteous or those who trust in themselves morally. It's not the, the, those who trust in their own good works. Here, it's, it's those who are the lowly, those who are the outcasts, those who are the sinners. Salvation here is for humble sinners who see their need of a Savior. That's why the Pharisees are upset with Jesus. They got gripes with him. Or then we can also think of this reversal of fortune taking place in Luke chapter 6, verses 20 to 23. It says there, you don't have to turn there, blessed are, you who, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. So there again, you see how the lowly are exalted? The spiritual poor and needy, they are the ones who inherit the kingdom of God. Those who spiritually hunger are invited to feast on the bread of heaven, that is Jesus. And those who suffer at the hands of those who persecute, they come to know an abiding peace now and into eternity. It's interesting though, this reversal of fortune, it is those who are humble, who see their need, it is those who are saved. Meaning that the proud who are humbled and lowered the proud who are scattered, you know, they don't have eyes to see it. This is why the gospel of Jesus Christ is often misunderstood, isn't it? I mean, those of you who know, who have become Christians later on, you know that at one point in time, perhaps, you misunderstood the gospel and counted it as foolishness. To those who rely on themselves, the idea of man being in such dire need of help, such that your salvation is dependent on God himself, to intervene and step into this sinful world, you know, it, uh, that's kind of like a joke. The incarnation and the cross of Christ becomes a joke or even an offense. This is offensive. Christ, the king, is born to a teenage nobody and not a queen, right? This doesn't make sense according to the world's ways. Jesus' birthplace was in a stable with stinky animals and not in a palace. He, Jesus claims to be the king of the Jews, but rides to Jerusalem on a donkey of peace. And then when he gets to Jerusalem, he is mocked and spit on, beaten, and made to wear a crown of thorns that is nailed, sorry, that is put on his head, and then he is nailed to the throne that was his cross. And to then to embrace this Jesus requires that we embrace our own sinfulness and rebellion. 
See how offensive this gospel is to those who trust in everything else other than Jesus? But to the humble, to the lowly who see their need for a Savior, Christ the Son come in the flesh is the dawning of hope, isn't it? The Son of God is conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the average, ordinary woman. He is born in a lowly place. The Son of God takes on the likeness of sinful flesh, like myself, in order that He might sympathize with me. He struggles like me, but was without sin, in order that He might identify with me and then go on to save me. And though he could judge me immediately, bringing the full force of his justice upon me, he chooses to bring peace to the repentant. He purposefully rejects being mounted on a war horse in order that his animal, the donkey, would symbolize what Christ stands for. That is peace and reconciliation. Even though he knows that war rages in the hearts of his soon-to-be murderers, nevertheless he brings reconciliation to them through himself. And even though it was my sin that nailed him to the cross as he bore the wrath that I deserved, and even though I was the one who mocked him and wanted nothing to do with him, yet he chooses to love sinners anyways. There at the cross where his blood was spilled and his body was broken and where he bore the wrath that sinful people deserved, the doors of salvation are flung wide open, aren't they? In Christ's salvation, divine aid has come to sinners. That's hope for the needy person right there. So non-Christian friends, do you see your need as a sinner? The Bible says that all people have rebelled against their creator and maker. But friends, you know, every, we see God's humility everywhere here. He sends Jesus Christ, the Son of God, take on flesh in humility to go to the cross, to live a perfect life, and then to die at the hands of sinners, bearing the sins that he did not commit, suffering the wrath of God that he did not deserve, in order that people would be saved. But friends, that humility, God's transcendence, God's imminence there, is flexed to everyone who repents and believes. And this humble king and his call to salvation stands until he returns. And that is a mark of God's humility. From our passage, it is young and ordinary Mary who reminds us of, reminds us of this. There she stands in that town of Judah, holding baby Jesus in her womb. Speaking of things of which she did not fully understand. Pointing people to mercy that is open to generations who trust in him. Look there at 48 and 49. She speaks of what God has done for her. And then if you look at verse 50, she speaks of what is available to everyone who turns to God. And his mercy is for those who fear him, worship him, honor him from generation to generation. Even here we are reminded, aren't we, that salvation is all of his grace. What is available it isn't more time for you to do good works. It isn't more time for you to flex morality, to trust in your own goodness. What is available is His mercy, His covenant, His steadfast love, His faithfulness. That's what's available. And to anyone and everyone who turns from their sins and believes on Him. So when she says His mercy is available to everyone, generation to generation, what He's talking about is all of His covenant faithfulness flexed to sinners who deserve nothing but His wrath. Instead, He looks upon people who repent of their sins and believe, He looks upon them in love and gives Himself in love to them no matter what it is that you have done or will do if you turn from your sins and believe. And she says there, look, you want to know confidence of God's love, His steadfast love? You look there at 54 and 55. Luke 1, 54 to 55 says, she brings up all of this evidence in the Old Testament and points us to that. He indeed has helped His servant Israel in the birth of Jesus Christ in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever. 
That's confidence to know God's faithfulness to save, to forgive, to reconcile, to adopt sinners, to justify them, declare them righteous. He remembers his mercy, friends, and he therefore helps all who turn to him. The question, therefore, is have you turned? You know, this rejoicing that we see Mary uh, throw up to God, the rejoicing that we see Elizabeth throw up to God, the same this rejoicing that we see the angels have in the birth of Jesus Christ. Here, this couldn't be your rejoicing, as God exalts the humble who turn to Him. Friends, repent and believe, and you will be saved. During this Christmas holiday, we Christians and non-Christians are encouraged to learn from Mary, the mother of Jesus, Now again, Mary probably spoke of things that she didn't fully grasp. She spoke of things that she didn't fully understand. But knowing what unfolds through Jesus, we know Mary means more than what she intended. And she here is a model of faith. And she invites us not only to watch the the pregnancy unfold and the birth of Christ unfold, but salvation unfold in Christ as well. So you see her faith. Look there in 145. Here, this is what Elizabeth praises her for, or one reason why at least. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what what was spoken to her from the Lord. And then it's God's promises to Mary, uh, or God's promises that Mary points us to here at the end of the hymn. Did you notice that there in 155? God has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke thousands of years ago, to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. So friends, will you believe his promises and his faithfulness to save, to truly exalt the humble who trust in him? Friends, Jesus too is our example here. Just as he humbled himself and went to the cross, so he was exalted. And so everyone who believes in him too follows in his footsteps. They too are exalted, or sorry, humbled in Jesus Christ. But they too also are exalted in Jesus Christ, as we know that everyone who repents and believes are seated with Jesus Christ in the heavenly places because He is their Savior. And you, if you repent and believe, are God's beloved. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much for the Incarnation, which speaks so much about your character, your humility, your kindness and compassion to identify with sinners. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you call us to come as we are, acknowledging, confessing, repenting of our sin, and embracing you to fall at your feet in worship, Embracing the fact that you alone are Savior and Lord. Father, we pray that your Spirit will be working even right now to exalt Jesus Christ in all of our lives. And Lord, we ask that the rejoicing, the magnification of Jesus Christ here that we see going on with Mary and the angels and all these others, Lord, that we too would be doing the same types of things. That you would help us by the power of the Spirit exalt Jesus Christ and magnify Christ in all of our lives, whether we are eating or drinking, Lord, we ask that we would do all to your glory. In your name we pray, amen.